Cool. How are you guys? Nah, you don't need to do that. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, really great to see you guys. I'm having a fantastic day. Been looking forward to getting to be with you guys. Worshiping with Frontline South is a blast. And then tonight, uh, I don't have to preach the 6 o'clock downtown. So that means I get to take my son to go see the new Black Panther movie. So my day is just looking good. Um, the only downside is that mom can't come with us tonight. So our snacks are going to be actually like movie theater snacks that we have to buy because moms have smuggling skills, right? Like my wife never ceases to amaze me. We, we go see a movie and I'm like, how did you fit nine Dr. Thunders and a rotisserie chicken in your purse? <laughs> it is amazing. Um, so anyways, this feels, like, this feels like a breath of fresh air to get to be with you guys. And I'm really, really grateful that I, that I get to be here. Um, I'm gonna pray for you guys, you pray for me. And then we're gonna dive into Hosea. We're going to be in chapters 5 and 6 today. If you're new to the Bible, you can go ahead and start finding that. If you go to the beginning, you can get a page number, or you can go between Daniel and Joel towards the end of the Old Testament and find it. So, Father, thanks for today. Lord, thanks that this church is a testimony not to human ingenuity or great leadership or strategy or structure, that this church, that people are meeting Jesus, that Christ is being formed as a testimony to your grace. Thanks for choosing us. Thanks for loving us. Lord, I want to pray in particular for all the really brave men and women that have walked away from Jesus and they're here today wrestling with really big questions about faith and meaning and life and church. Lord, I, I pray for them today. I just pray that today would help them and bless them. Lord, I pray for people whose faith feels shaken that you would meet them. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would sense the very real presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit and that your word would be powerful as it always is, active as it always is, and effective as it always is. So where we don't listen, give us ears. Where our hearts are hard, make them soft. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. So let me give you a quick Curry family update before I dive into this. It's been a while since I got to be with you guys, and since last time I was here at Frontline South, my wife has gone back to school, so that's a big deal in the Curry house. Um, my wife is really gifted, really brilliant, really kind, full of mercy, and our kids are getting older. So my, my daughter is actually a junior in high school, which is both beautiful and heart-wrenching. It's like the slow knife into your soul to see your little girl growing up, and my son is uh, 6'3 and getting older. And so Nancy and I have been processing over the last year with our kids getting older and they're um, in this moment where they're getting ready to launch out into the world what does Nancy want to do with the next 20 years of her life in terms of ministry and vocation? And we've been thinking about her gifts and her calling and her passions, and Nancy's decided that she wanted to go back to school to get a nursing degree because she really likes to care for people and get her hands dirty, and she wants to serve folks. And uh, so here's the challenge in that. My wife's bachelor's is in English, and if you spend four years studying Chaucer, you don't do a whole lot of science, Right? So Nancy's having to do the prereqs to get into the nursing program, and right now, my girl is cowboying up on anatomy, physiology, and microbiology at the same time, both with labs. And if you don't know what that means, that just means hard. It just means hard. It means really difficult. And it's led to some really weird moments in our family, like a hot date for us right now is us talking about things like Golgi bodies and mitochondria. And, and there's been multiple moments where I thought that Nancy was giving me affection and like rubbing the back of my neck. And what I've realized is she's actually using me as an anatomy dummy and she's trying to remember the Latin for vertebrae. 
And the reason that that actually has something to do with the book of Hosea is that as, as we've been talking and as I've been trying to help her study, even though I know very little about science other than the world is round, it really is, um, he, here's what's been fascinating. Seeing microbiology and anatomy and physiology at the same time is this beautiful, it's this beautiful integration of the really tiny and the systems of the body that make the whole. That's really interesting to think about these really beautiful things that God designed in our body that help our biological functions so we can thrive, so we can flourish, that you can't see, and yet they're taking place all the time in your body, and together they work to form the whole of who we are, our systems, our organs, our total body. Now, when it comes to the Bible, the reason this is really relevant is that sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we try to do microbiology without anatomy physiology. And what I mean is, we can get really bogged down in the tiny granular details without seeing how they fit into the whole. And sometimes what happens is we study scripture, we get focused on these particular moments to the exclusion of how they fit into the whole story of God. We can get lost in the forest and not know that we're in a forest and just see trees in front of us. And the thing that's so crazy about God's word is that though there are particular prophets and people and crises and moments and victories and defeats and all kinds of dramas that unfold in the Old Testament, even though all those things are really diverse and really unique, they fit into the whole story of God. And if you don't know that, if you don't see that, then you can read the Old Testament in such a way that you walk away actually having your faith profoundly shaken, right? If you wrongly believe, like many people in the Bible Belt, that the Old Testament is a pantheon of heroes that you're supposed to emulate, and then you actually read it, you're like, that doesn't seem to work. Because Abraham was the father of the faith, but he was also the guy that out of cowardice was willing to sell out his own wife. And I don't think any wife in the room is like, yeah, guys, emulate that, right? Or King David, King David, who's described as a man after God's own heart, is also the very same guy that used his position, power, and authority to prey on a woman in his kingdom, to take what was not his, to violate her, and then to murder her husband, and so if you get into the Bible and you don't understand that what God's doing in Scripture is not painting a picture of tremendous human heroes that you can emulate and that you can copy in your own ability, but instead, he's revealing who he is in the story of grace in Jesus, what can happen is your faith can actually be shaken. You can walk away not understanding why is there so much violence and drama and pain and loss in Scripture. Now, what does that mean for today? Well, today we get to open up Hosea chapter five and six, and what I want you to see is even though in these two chapters that we're gonna look at together, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of loss, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of brokenness, there's a lot of really devastating things that God says. God's gonna say some things that if you're paying attention, they should shock you and they should scare you a little bit. Even though all that's there in Hosea 5 and 6, at the very same time, the DNA of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is there in DNA form so that you can actually see that the whole story of the Bible is about God's great rescue for sinners in Christ. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes, we're going to walk through 5 and 6, and we're going to look at two really sobering limitations 
two really sobering limitations, and then we're gonna look at something that is beautifully limitless. Two limitations and something that's limitless. Here we go. Number one, the first limitation is the limitation of human nature. And the limitation of human nature dovetails in Hosea 5 and 6 into two realities. Reality one is that people can play religious games They can play religious games, but they can't actually change their own hearts to love and worship God. Look with me, Hosea chapter five, starting in verse six. Here's what it says. With their flocks and their herds, they go to seek the Lord. Now just stop for a second, because that sounds great, doesn't it? This means that the children of Israel are gonna bring their flocks, they're gonna bring their herds, they're gonna make the sacrifices that were instituted in Mosaic law, they're gonna keep festivals and feasts like God instituted in Mosaic law, but, read the rest of it, they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord for they've borne alien children. Now the new moon will devour them and their fields. Here's what it's saying. In this cultural moment in Israel, you could look at all the religious frameworks of the land, the rituals that God instituted, and the prayers that God instituted, and the sacrifices that God instituted, and if you just looked at it from the outside without understanding what God wants to have inside the framework of ritual, you might think that Israel is killing it in their relationship with God. They're really religious. They know how to pray. They know the history of Israel. They're willing to sacrifice their flocks and their herds. And yet at the same time, throughout the minor prophets, God keeps saying these really sobering things to his people like, hey guys, stop it. I hate your festivals. I hate your burnt offerings. I don't receive your prayers. Stop giving me fast that are disconnected from the things that I really value and want. See, here's what God tells the children of Israel, and this is really the problem with their religious games in Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So look at me and get this. Um, the framework of religious ritual is not in itself bad. In fact, the framework that God gave them, the framework of festivals and the framework of sacrifices and the framework of having a history to recite and remember and seasons of the year to actually have rhythms with each other and with God that reminded them of God's story, those frameworks in themselves are not bad, but when those frameworks are a vacuum that don't contain true love for God, real faith, genuine worship, true humility, then God actually sees the framework as not only missing the point, but actually as being offensive. And I think that it's really important in this part of the world to have a sober realization that on your own, you're hardwired for playing religious games with God. We're really good at that. We're good at having mouths that pay lip service and hearts that are far from God. And one of the things that is sobering for me as a pastor is the knowledge that there are multiple people in our church that think that being a Christian equals a genetic disposition to be a Baptist like your mom or be a Methodist like your dad. It's hereditary. Like think about how many people in our particular part of the world, if you asked them, hey, are you a Christian? 
The answer is something like, well, yeah. And then you dig in, and you're like, well, what does that mean to be a Christian? And the answer is, well, I go to church sometimes, or my parents were religious, or maybe I give to city rescue mission, or, you know, I try, I try my best to live a good life, and here's the problem with those answers. God actually defines true and authentic religion as not just having a framework of ritual, but having within that framework faith, devotion, steadfast love, and not just sacrifice, knowledge of God, and not just empty ritual. And, and that's why in our particular cultural context, we hear a lot of conversion stories and deconversion stories that show how empty religion can really be. Here, here's the conversion story we hear a lot here at Frontline. Um, we certainly have the story of people that have been raised in atheistic homes or from other religious traditions that have met Jesus and been baptized, and those stories are beautiful. But more often than not, here's the story that we hear around here. I was raised in church. I went to church. I tried my best to live a good life. I thought that my deeds would be enough to stand before God. I thought that my moralistic effort and activities was pleasing to God. I thought that as long as I lived in the religious framework of church attendance and occasionally reading my Bible and praying, everything was good. And finally, I came to this sober realization that I didn't really trust in Jesus, I trusted in myself. I didn't really love Jesus, I loved the image that I portrayed to the world of being a really good religious person. We hear that story all the time. We also hear deconversion stories in this part of the world a lot, don't we? Um, one, one of my friends is a guy who would probably describe himself as a pagan, and he went to seminary to be a youth pastor. I've got another friend. I've got another friend, one of the most atheistic guys I know that's really hostile towards the faith and think church, he thinks church is ridiculous. He, he mocks me to my face on the regular and he also went to seminary and did youth ministry. And the point of all that, listen, is one of the profound human limitations is that we can play religious games with God but we lack the capacity, we lack the power, we lack the ability to fill that religious framework with the things that God actually finds pleasing like true faith, true obedience, true devotion. Now, the second human limitation is not just that they can play religious games but not get to God. They, they also can offer God fickle love, but not steadfast love. They can offer God fickle love, but not steadfast love. Look at Hosea 6, verse four. God says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? That's a name for the northern tribes. What shall I do with you, O Judah? That's a southern tribe. Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Um, I grew up in Southern California. Don't, don't hold that against me. I got to Oklahoma as soon as I can, and I'm gonna be buried here. But in Southern California, there's this common phenomenon where like the Pacific Ocean will have moisture come up out of it, and that moisture will blow in from offshore to the coast, and you'll wake up in the morning, and it's just a gloomy, foggy day. And people walk outside, and even though people have lived there for decades and they know what's gonna happen, they walk outside and everybody's bummed out that the morning's foggy, and it's like, oh, this is terrible, we can't go to the beach, and almost without fail, somewhere around one o'clock in the afternoon, the sun burns off the clouds, and like every day in Southern California, it ends up being 80 degrees and sunny. And what God's saying to his people here is, you offer me fickle love, 
Sometimes you're infatuated with me. Sometimes you're in pain, so you seek me. Um, Sometimes you're really passionate about saying the right things to me, but the reality is around one o'clock every afternoon, your love grows really thin, and you start to see all the shiny things in the world that you find more appealing and more beautiful than me. And I hate this because this is so often my story. Like today, I, I really am aware of the goodness and beauty of Jesus. I really believe right now my heart is connected and getting to talk to you. I'm, I'm excited about getting to go to the Lord's table with you guys and eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. Um, I'm aware of the beauty of Jesus. And right now in this moment, I really do believe that Jesus is a greater treasure than family or money or pleasure or food or anything else in this world. But I'm aware of how fickle my love is. That it's likely like a lot of weeks by one o'clock tomorrow afternoon, the son of difficulty or the son of boredom or the son of distraction is going to shine and my fickle love is going to burn off and I'm really going to find myself standing there loving things in this world more than I love Jesus. Now, these two limitations that we can be really religious and we can be really fickle with God but we can't really walk in steadfast love, God gets to the, diag- the diagnosis of what's going on here in this text. What's really happening with Israel is something that's really happening with all of humanity. The problem with them is the problem with us, and God, in a really clear and concise way, unpacks the problem in Hosea 5, verse 4. Here's what it says. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Here's what God's saying. There's two problems with their religious games and their fickle love. What's driving it? Well, problem one is that they have deeds that habituate them to run to other gods and lovers. Their deeds have habituated. Their deeds don't permit them to return. Um, Can we just be honest? I know it's church, no place for honesty, but can we try it? Can we just admit that deeds start to build a momentum of their own, right? Running to self-medicate with all kinds of food and drink, it's not a one-time deal. It builds a momentum, doesn't it? It gets easier the second time, the third time, the fourth time. Um, Turning away from our spouse in pursuit of intimacy with them that requires work and courage and relationship and communication, it's a lot easier to move towards porn for the release, porn for the escape, for the mini vacation than actually fighting to pursue our spouses. And what happens is those deeds start to habituate us. We form habits, don't we? And those habits start to compel us and it it gets really hard to break out of the patterns of our lives. So what God's saying is part of the problem with Israel is that they have all these other lovers because their deeds have habituated them. It's habituated them towards infidelity. But here's the real problem. It's not just their choices Below the line under the surface that's driving the deeds, the reason the deeds are there is because God says they have a spirit of whoredom that prevents them from knowing God. Now, when God talks about a spirit of whoredom here, he's not talking about a ghost or a demon. He's saying that the spirit that they have, the default setting of their heart, the essence of who they are as people, is that they're constantly wandering away from God because they're hardwired to wander away from God. And this is not just a 800 century BC Israel problem because Paul says in Romans chapter one that the great problem with humanity is that we, we exchange the glory of God 
We bought into a lie and we traded creator for creation. See, here's what he's saying, man. The problem with us is not just our deeds, it's that under the deeds is this default setting of rebellion and turning in which we try to find the answer to the deepest questions of who we are. We try to find salvation and comfort and life and identity and joy in all kinds of things under the sun that lead us habitually away from devotion and faith and relationship with the God that created us for his glory. And this isn't just them, this is us. This is us. And this leads us to the second limitation, which is equally sober. In the midst of their fake, nonsense religion and fickle love, God brings judgment. And what I want you to see is that that judgment is also limited. There's a limitation to their human nature, but there's also a limitation to divine judgment. And before you shout me down as a heretic, let me read it to you. Hosea chapter five, starting starting in verse 12. God says, but I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wounds. For I have been like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue Here's what's fascinating in this verse. Um, if you were around, especially in the 90s, there were a lot of Bible studies about the names of God, and there's some really beautiful stuff there. These various ways that God describes himself in scripture that help us understand his character. What's interesting though is I've never read one of those that included some of the names that God uses right here. God describes himself as being like a moth like dry rot, like a lion. And this is not talking about Jesus as the lion of Judah. This is talking about a lion that's lying in wait on the highway in a rural community 800 years before the birth of Jesus that wanted to eat you alive. What God's saying here to his people is that in response to their evil, to restrain their evil in their own culture, in their own community, and in the world, God's brought forward to them judgment in which God is like a moth that eats their stuff. God's like dry rot that devours their house from the inside, and God's like a lion laying in wait on the road to tear them. Now, let's just stop for a second. A couple things. God's judgment, God's judgment is connected to his love, it's connected to his character. Without God's judgment, evil would be unrestrained. The forces of chaos would decreate everything that's beautiful in this world. God's judgment is an act of his direct opposition because of his character and goodness to the ways in which we not only get our relationship with him wrong in blasphemy, but the way that we devour each other when we're disconnected to him. And in this cultural moment in Israel, they really are eating each other alive. You lose your relationship with God in which you love him and fear him and see him as ultimate and you're willing to let greed cause you to use people. Lust causes you to objectify people. Idolatry leads to belittling the humanity of other folks and what's happening in Israel right now is that their culture is just rotten to its core. And God's like, guys, I'm gonna resist you. I'm gonna resist you. I'm gonna eat your stuff. I'm gonna erode your house. I'm gonna tear you. 
Now, here's what some of you, I hope, are thinking. Well, why would I say that there's a limitation to divine judgment? Doesn't that sound like heresy? Isn't God's judgment just? Doesn't God's judgment accomplish things that are right and true? And my answer is, yes, God's judgments are right, they're just, they're true. God can and does at times give people what they deserve and what they want. That happens. But the limitation of divine judgment is that the end that God seeks with humanity can't be accomplished by God giving us what we deserve. The end that God wants for you, listen to me, the end that God wants for you can't be the result of him giving you what you deserve because the end that he wants for you is not just justice. The end that God wants for you is not for God to kill you because your heart's dead or shout at you because your heart's deaf. What God wants for you is so profoundly different. What does he desire? Steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, listen, um, the controlling metaphor of this book of the Bible is Hosea the prophet and his wife Gomer. And they, they exit the story after chapter three and you can start to think, well, they're no longer a part of this story, but they are the controlling metaphor for the story. This man named Hosea that loves this woman named Gomer that pursues her, that knows her, that wants to live with her, that wants her heart and wants her soul and wants her body. He wants the totality of who she is and he goes after her and Gomer in response to Hosea is a habitual adulterer who keeps rejecting him and breaking his heart and turning to other lovers and wandering away. And even though Gomer and Hosea drop out of being highlighted in the story after chapter three, Their love story, which is tragic and painful, is the controlling metaphor for this book. God doesn't just want to give you and give me what we deserve. God wants a heart that knows him and that loves him. God wants to live in eternal intimacy with his people. God wants your affections, your soul. And listen, God giving us the justice that we deserve can't accomplish that kind of relationship. So what does this lead us to? Well, this leads us to the gospel DNA in the book of Hosea. It leads us to something that's limitless. Human nature, really limited. Divine judgment, limited in what it can accomplish. But grace is limitless. Look at verse 11. This is the end game that God wants for his people. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. God's saying, look, there's judgment that I'm gonna give Israel, but the end game is not judgment. What I want for my people is actually harvest and restoration, a happy ending. How is this happy ending possible? Well, here's the crux of the entire chapter. Take your Bible, Hosea 6, verse 1. In a moment of prophetic identification, Hosea the prophet that's writing this book is going to count himself as among the people who have a spirit of whoredom. Hosea is not going to say, you guys are over there and I'm over here. Hosea is going to use we language, us language, and he's going to stand with Israel identify with Israel, and he's gonna prophesy to him something that's really profound. Look at verse one. Come, 
let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now look right here, guys. All of the prophets in the Old Testament, every one of them, including Hosea, all of them, in ways that they knew about and in ways that they didn't know about, under the inspiration and leadership of God the Holy Spirit, all of these prophets are pointing beyond themselves to a greater prophet who's not just a prophet. Here's how Jesus put it, right? Jesus was talking to the Bible scholars of his day, and he rebuked him, and he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but they testify about me, Jesus, and you refuse to come to me that you may live. What Hosea is doing in this moment of prophetic identification with God's people is he's pointing beyond himself to a greater prophet who's not just a prophet who would do a lot more than identify with God's people with mere words. The greater prophet, Jesus, would identify with God's people by actually taking their sin, their deeds of adultery, their spirit of whoredom, their fickle love, and the justice that they deserved, he would bear that on himself and count himself as his people in their iniquity to be able to actually wash them and cleanse them and deliver them through his death and resurrection. So let's look at this text again and let's think about it in light of the finished work of Jesus. We could say, come, Let us return to the Lord, for he has struck him, Jesus, that he might heal us. He has struck him down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive him, Jesus. On the third day, he will raise him up that we may live before him. Hosea is pointing beyond himself and past himself to somebody that is a prophet and more than a prophet. He's God's last and best word to humanity. And that prophet, God's son himself, would not just identify with God's people with linguistic understanding of common brokenness and sin. He would be the sinless one that would identify with them by taking their sin. And the response to the work of Jesus is rightly summed up in 3, Hosea 6, 3. It says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So look right here. here. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's gospel DNA in the book of Hosea. God wants something so much more profound for you and me than giving us what we deserve. He wants something so much better than just doling out justice to you and me. He could give us justice, he could give us what we deserve, and nobody on the face of the planet would be justified in raising a fist and telling him he was wrong. And yet, instead of just offering us justice in Jesus, what he offers us is mercy 
the mercy of steadfast love that shapes us and forms us and invites us into this covenant relationship where we get to be counted as his people, his bride, and grow in loving devotion for him as we seek his face in response to him actually revealing his face in Jesus. Here's what's crazy right now. Again and again in this chapter, there's these references to seeking God or seeking the face of God or returning to God. And Here's the reality. If God's most interested in giving you what you deserve and you seek his face, his face is gonna be terrifying. And maybe there's people in here and you're like, man, I'm not that bad. I'm not that messed up. I'm like not cheating on my wife or I'm not filling the blank. Like here's what you gotta know, man. Comparing you to a really bad person and feeling good about yourself is just totally futile when God is without sin and he can see our hearts like they're naked and bare before him. And so if the end game is giving us what we deserve and you seek God's face, his face is gonna be really angry at you. And God's face being angry is really scary. But if the end game of God is offering you mercy, adoption, forgiveness, cleansing in the finished work of Jesus, and you seek his face through Jesus and his cross and resurrection, then what you can expect as you seek his face is not a frown, it's not a grimace, it's actually the radiant affection of a husband for his bride on their wedding day or a father for his child on its birthday. It's mercy. So as we wrap this up, man, here's great news. Are you religious? If you are religious and you have the framework of ritual or maybe the framework of morality or maybe the framework of heritage in the faith because your parents were Christians or your grandparents were Christians, but inside of that framework, you don't have real love for Jesus, you haven't trusted in Jesus, you're still comparing yourself to other people, you're self-righteous, if that's you today, there is a beautiful invitation to move out of an empty framework into a full framework, to trust in Christ today, to receive mercy. And are you running from God in irreligion? There's an invitation from God to you today that you're not gonna find what you're looking for out there. You're just not. It doesn't exist out there. Money and food and sex and work, these all have their place. But none of them have the power or the sufficiency to answer the deeper longings of your heart and soul. God invites you to come to him in Jesus. And are you, like me, are you a fickle Christian that's just embarrassed a little bit about how fickle your love is? That like, you could be really devoted on a Sunday and by Monday at one o'clock, the sun burns off your fickle love and you're like, gosh, what I really want to love right now is just a cheeseburger and forgetting my problems. Guess what? There's steadfast love for you in Jesus to form you over time for your love to grow less and less fickle and more and more steadfast because his love is steadfast. Can we take a second and pray? If you guys would bow your heads and close your eyes. Um, I just ask that nobody look around for just a minute, not because bowing your heads and closing your eyes is an incantation or magic, but just to give people some privacy. I want to ask just a couple of questions. I want to say, if you 
have walked away from Jesus for whatever reason. Fickle love or you got hurt in church or you had faith at one point in the cares of this world it feels like have choked it out. If you've walked away from Jesus and today you'd really like to return to the steadfast love of God in Christ, you'd like to return. You don't have to do anything to return except turn towards Christ and trust him. If that's you today and you want to return, I want to pray for you. Will you just raise your hand? Nobody's looking at you, just me. I want to return. I want to come back. Thanks, guys. I see you. Thank you. Are there, are there people here that want to, the, for the first time, come to Jesus? Maybe you've been in religion without faith, or maybe you've been in irreligion trying to find the answers you're searching for in the world, but you'd like to make a genuine return and trust in Christ and know the steadfast love of God. If that's you and you'd like to come to Jesus, raise your hand, I want to pray for you too. So Father, I'm so thankful for this church and I'm thankful that this church is here not um, disconnected from what you've been doing in history, but I thank you that this church is here because of the long timeline, the really ancient timeline of your pursuit of people to not give them what they deserve, but to give them your steadfast love in Christ. I pray today for those that raised their hand that they would be able to return knowing that when the prodigal came back, the father sprinted to him and clothed him and kissed him and wrapped his arms around him. I pray, Lord, for those that need to return today that they would turn to Jesus knowing that the countenance of God, the face of God is not brooding, it's not grumpy, it's not prone to fits of rage. There is no more wrath for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus bore all the wrath the face of the Father is a face of welcome, patience, kindness, and delight. So help us today to turn from sin into the face of God in Jesus.